Ahoy Mets fans, welcome to episode 188 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the podcast for your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore, welcome to our draft preview. Now, just fair warning, there will be another episode drops the morning of the draft, but we felt that may not be enough time for all of our listeners to fully appreciate all that's going on with this week's show. So... We are here a little bit early to talk about the 2016 Major League Baseball First Year's Player Draft. We're going to have MLB draft expert Jonathan Mayo on in a little while. But first, I was joined by our own Steve Saipa and Lucas Vlahos to talk about the draft. So here we go. One quick note, Lucas's internet was not behaving all that nicely, so he does kind of drop in and out a couple of times. We did our best to make it sound normal, but just wanted to give you a heads up that the audio is not perfect, but such is the lot of a podcast recorded around Skype. So here we go. Enjoy. Welcome to the Amazing Avenue Audio Draft Preview. I am joined by Steve Saipa and Lucas Vlahos. And gentlemen, you are far more uh, knowledgeable and in tune with what's going on in the draft world. So I'm very happy to have you guys here. And I guess before we start, let's just talk overall about the Mets drafts under Sandy Alderson and under scouting director Tommy Tannis. How would you guys rank the draft thus far uh, under the under the regime? We had an email from a listener named uh, Tom Riccobono, and he asked essentially that question. He, he, he claims that other than Conforto, no one has really emerged to be a sure winner. Um, he asked if that's just the nature of the draft or if this front office's draft has drafts have just been, you know, subpar thus far. So what do you guys think about the Alderson regime's drafts? Uh, personally, it's probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of years ago, Chris McShane uh, went over a bunch of uh, Alderson's first three year, his first three drafts. So that was, um, he looked at the data and basically the Mets drafted roughly 10% more high school players than the rest of the MLB. So just by nature, uh, you know, high school players are going to take a longer time to develop and mature Mm -hmm. into the major leagues than college players. Um, In 2004, they drafted 21 high school players, 16 college players and two junior college players. And then last year they had 19 high school players, 18 college, and again, two junior college players. So, this this front office, I think, from the beginning has kind of had the long-term picture more in mind. Um, I mean, there have been some hits and misses, obviously, in both who they selected out of high school and who they've selected out of college. But that's something that's, you know, not specific to the Met system or the executives who've been drafting specifically as opposed to just the nature of the draft, you know? Mm-hmm. Lucas, anything to add there? I mean, I, I would say... If it, only looking at the top end, you have to be decently pleased. And you look at 2011, you have Nick, who's still a decent prospect. Fulmer, who's pitching decently in the majors and fetched uh, Cespedes last season, obviously. Logan Verrett, who's kicking around, still is our depth starter. Robert Gazelman, who's our top uh, pitching prospect at this point. And, and a couple other useful guys in there. Uh, 2012 has some good names as well. Probably Sakini, but we're all pretty down on him. Uh, he hasn't hit yet, but that was a solid result from a catcher that taken that high. And, uh, even we could go through each draft individually, but that would take too long. But there are decent 
number of interesting options that they've picked up. Uh, so I'll be, I'll admit I'm a little bit underwhelmed by some of their first round selections in particular zucchini at the time I didn't like and Dominic Smith, at the time I really didn't like since drafting a high school bat already, uh, stuck at first base really doesn't leave a lot of room for error. Um, <laughs> But aside from those like small maybe errors, I don't see a huge flaw in their process here. Yeah, I, I think it's it's obviously people say you got to wait five years really to evaluate a draft, and that even might be too short of a time if you're drafting high school players. So there hasn't been a ton of time to really take the long view here. But I think just the fact that we can name a couple of first or second round picks that have hit the majors already that that's not a terrible sign for the team's uh, drafting ability, especially because, I mean, Conforto is clearly the, the, the cream of the crop here. I mean, they, they drafted him and less than, was it less than a calendar year or just over a calendar year later he made his debut? I guess it was like 14 months later he made his major league debut, which is pretty unheard of in today's game. Um, Absolutely, and he... Go ahead. He's probably the best, one of the better picks taken. I mean, obviously, when you're picking at the top of the draft, like the Cubs and the Astros did, you're going to get the players. And the Mets didn't do that full teardown process. So getting Conforto and getting that quality of major league, at least what he's shown so far in his career, that's a very strong pick at number 10. I've seen some folks even claim that if the draft was done today, he would unanimously go number one. Yeah. I forget who else was in that draft, honestly, aside from Schwarber, because mm-hmm. everyone always makes that comparison. Right. Uh, let's see. Who was 2014? All oh, right. We had the whole Brady Aiken nonsense. Yep. Right, Kolek right, blew right. out his arm. Rodon is still struggling with his mechanics. Schwarber. Nick Gordon is in what? Like, advanced A. Yeah. Alex Jackson is terrible. Aaron Nola's been very good. Uh, Kyle Freeland is bad and on the and Jeff Hoffman is kind of good and on the Rockies now. So yeah, I could see that Conforto would probably go top three. Maybe someone would take justify Nola or Schwarber over him. Yeah. Um, if you guys had to sort of generally characterize where the Mets system is, I, I know you don't draft to fill specific holes in the system. That's kind of a silly way to look at things. But if you look at their system right now, what do you hope this draft brings them? What's what's sort of needed in the system at the moment, in your opinions? Uh, I mean, the, the system has graduated, you know, all of its elite prospects at this point in time. So ideally, you know, you'd, you'd want to see an infusion of some elite talent, whether or not elite talent... Uh, will be selected by the Mets with their with their first pick. Um, remains to be seen. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> Just kind of I mean, trailed off there. It's kind of a loaded question because the correct answer is best player available, and it usually is best player available, but that's not the answer we're looking for here. Given that the Mets' most talented prospects are all soon young at this point, or almost all of their most talented prospects are super young. We've got Zellman and others at the top. Um, but those young guys often flame out, change positions, whatever. You don't even want to consider uh, positional 
needs of the system at this point. Maybe if they had a lot of talent in the upper minors, but they don't, frankly. Does that make it a little bit more uh, enviable to pick college draftees? Because you uh, know that there are guys who are going to take a long time to get there? Slow down, Omar. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say college relievers, okay? There's a very important distinction there. Give me some of that Eddie Coons. Hey, oh, there, there is a college reliever who may be selected in the top, let's say, 15 picks this year. So he's Hopefully. no Eddie Kuntz, but... <laughs> well, few are. Well, isn't uh, Finnegan a reliever? And then they usually they take relievers and then make them starters. We took a reliever and left him as a reliever. Right. The, uh, uh, what do you call it? Finnegan was a starter. Optimally, I guess he should be a starter right now. I don't know how the Royals are. Well, the Royals traded him, I think. Yeah, the Reds are using him as a starter. I right. thought he was a reliever in college, but I didn't follow things closely back then. And the, uh, the, guy I mentioned before, uh, Zach Birdie, who is a reliever who is projected to go in like the top 20, let's say, in the first round most definitely. I mean, he's he's an elite reliever. You know, he has a 100 plus mile power fastball and he has, you know, his brother is also uh, an MLB. Uh, so he has good genes, whatever. So he's, let's say, the exception to the rule, obviously. You, know, okay. you don't want to draft relievers first. Yeah. And speaking about this year's draft class, how is the draft class? How do you guys feel about it compared to the last, let's say, two or three years? Uh, overall, it's there's a lot of there's a strong crop of high school players. You know, in the probably what will be the top ten, you have maybe five guys that are going to be out of high school: Mickey Moniak, Riley Pint, Blake Rutherford, Delvin Perez, Jason Groom. Uh, it's a strong year for pitchers, right-handed pitchers. Um, and it's a deep, it's a deep pool. Um, the talent is at the top isn't necessarily super elite, but I mean, you can, you're going to go down to the second round, you're going to go down to the third round and there's still going to be some intriguing names. It's not like you're going to be finding the Drek that, you know, that early. Yeah. Not to set Juan Uribe or anything, but it's kind of similar to the NFL draft this year, where <laughs> there's not a lot like there's no Carlos or Chris Bryant at the top. That's like the even Byron Buxton, who's the really obvious top three pick. Um, but there's a lot of deep talent here, and I think yeah, that would be really helpful that the Mets have picks in the top 100. They'll be able to access that deep talent a little bit more. Well, that's, I wanted to talk about that next, actually. So the Mets have, as Lucas just said, four picks in the top 100, and for a team that just went to the World Series, that's a pretty incredible feat. That they managed to pull off four picks in the top 100 and have that good of a season last year. Uh, do you guys? I mean, is that reason to be excited? Or once you get past the first round or two, does pick 100 matter all that differently from pick 200 or 250? I think it gives them a chance to take like an injury prone or an injury. I've suffered from injuries this year because you have. Maybe you play it safe or you go under slot earlier, but then you can use that money on a riskier pick later on. Sorry to interrupt you, Steve. That's I was going to say pretty much the same thing. It gives the Mets more breathing room to kind of do something not necessarily wacky, but to, you know, to, to do something maybe out of left field a little bit. You have more, you have more room to do something interesting. You don't necessarily need to just go with, well, this is the guy that's 
most highly ranked, and that's the end of it at every single pick. You can kind of mix and match depending on, you know, the organizational needs at that point. That's exciting to hear. It also gives you the flexibility to say uh, if there's, like, a certain profile they're looking for. Uh, For instance, I've seen uh, at least one draft mention that they're basically the floor for Zach Collins, who's a catcher that's not going to stick at catcher. It's a lot of guys in those draft class. So, okay, taking – they're looking for a catcher prospect of college, and they're okay taking it – limited one could pass on that earlier on and maybe pick up somebody who fits that same profile later on a Brett Cumberland or someone in that vein mm-hmm. now um, I know it's it's a very inexact science to try and predict who the Mets are going to take especially because their pick is not in the top 10 but there have been a number of mock drafts done now and has there been anybody that you guys have seen as a a target that you think is likely or a couple of guys you think might be on their radar? You give us a taste of a few names that we might be seeing the Mets take in the first round. Um, the man that the guy that's been connected most credibly, I guess, to the Mets is a um, <clears throat> he's a college third baseman from Wake Forest. His name is Will Craig. Um he is basically a power threat, and really, that's that's about it. <laughs> um, I mean, he's a, he's already they're already saying that he's a kind of poor defensive third baseman, and he's very likely to have to be moved over to first base, possibly even before his major league career begins. So, still while in, in the minor leagues, so that's not really uh, too hardening, but. I mean, he has, you know, double-digit home run potential, you know, legit home runs. So, um, I'm kind of kind of have mixed feelings about that, uh, about him. I mean, obviously, if he's the best guy left on the board, fine, but I like my, my, my players a bit more um, varied than just kind of one-dimensional. Not that Craig is one-dimensional. I mean, he has he has a, a good approach at the plate. You know, he, he doesn't really offer pitches he knows he's not going to be able to hit. He doesn't strike out a lot. Um, for his, let's see, for his career last year, he hit 407, 551, 826 with 13 home runs. So, I mean, he, he's a good hitter, obviously, okay, at the college level. So, I mean, he can hit, but it's just his defensive him being a defensive liability is kind of dodgy for me. Yeah, I agree on that. I'm not a big fan. I I wouldn't be as opposed to taking a college first baseman as I was to taking a high school first baseman. But again, you take somebody who's already at the bottom of the spectrum, you really don't leave a lot of wiggle room with the bat. The other, the other guys I've seen uh, mentioned with the Mets a decent amount and I don't know if you guys read D1 baseball, but they've got some decent stuff. They say there's a persistent rumor, in quotes, Anthony Kay from UConn, and this is going to be their second pick, uh, would be a guy they take with their second pick. Um, lefty, decent fastball, he can get some swings and misses. MLB says he's, uh, MLB Pipeline says he's more of a, a fourth, fifth starter type. Um I'm less. I also don't really like this connection because K has been so abused by the coach at UConn. Like they've just rode him 
hard this year. Not bad last year, but this year it's been absolutely awful what done to him. Um, so to see somebody with that much fatigue on the arm worries me. At Keith Law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you guys were, were Tommy Tannis, obviously you're going for the best guy on the board, but is there anybody that you would particularly have your eye on uh, that you'd hope would fall to the late first round for the Mets? Uh, you know, realistically, you know, we can all say we want the best pick to, to drop, but you know, realistically, could still be available at their pick. Right. Um, there are two players that possibly could go a lot higher. You know, like in the top, let's say top fifteen, that could fall down to the Mets. Uh, one of them is um, Cal Quant- Excuse me, yeah. Cal Quantrill. Uh, he is. Let me take up his stats here. Sorry about that. You have he is uh, right. He's a righty at Stanford. Um, he has really great stuff. Um, he's a four pitch mix. He can control all of his pitches. Uh, he has a good changeup. That's his best secondary offering. He has a curveball and a slider um, that we're developing. And he's the son of Paul Quantrill, who's a former major leaguer. Um, so he, you know genetics and growing up around baseball culture and everything like that. But the problem is that he had Tommy John surgery uh, last year and he has not gotten into a game this year. So if the Mets drafted him, they'd be drafting just on, they'd be basically just drafting blind, hoping that his stuff is still the same after the surgery. It's not like Tommy John is that big of a deal anymore you know, in terms of recovery and everything, but it's still a kind of major surgery. So I think we're also biased in that way because we, we tend to hear more about the major leaguers that get Tommy John, and those are the elite athletes among the elite athletes. So they're going to recover differently than your average Joe getting Tommy John. Right. Um, another guy who could realistically be drafted much higher but dropped to the Mets is a uh, high school pitcher named Matt Manning. Um, he's really projectable right now his fastball sits in you know the lower 90s um it's been clocked as high as 98 this season he has a, a developing uh, curveball developing changeup. the issue with him is that supposedly he's asking for a signing bonus upwards of four million dollars <laughs> which is kind of steep where that works into the Mets' favor, I think, is A, he might drop down to them. And in the case that they do draft him and then do not, do not sign him because of signability issues, that gives them the compensation pick for next year in the first round. In addition to um, the compensation pick that they will likely get for when Neil, work, Neil Walker leaves. So again, we might have a situation next year where there are, um, where the major league team does well and the team gets multiple draft picks, you know, in the top 100 again. Would they get a pick if Cespedes opts out? I think they can offer him arbitration. I'm not sure. Check. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I believe they. I believe there was this update specifically saying they could offer him arbitration, but I'll go try to dig that up real quick. Or a qualifying offer? Oh, right, right. Yeah. 
Let's see. Does Cots have it? Uh, no. Don't say that. Well, I mean, regardless, you know, it that it does bode well for the Mets for next year. But you would hope that maybe they wouldn't try and take. Do you think it's potential he falls to the sandwich round, or no? Uh, I know we're speaking in such crazy hypotheticals here, but I doubt that he drops that that far down. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could very reasonably be drafted within the first ten rounds. So him drafting down, you know, into the thirties, forties. I don't know that just seems too far down. Yeah, I, I think there's a chance. I've we've heard recently that Phillies during an underslot guy and then picking up an overslot guy with their next pick. This that would make, could make sense there if he drops. So I think he's too too far. He was the guy I was going to say I wanted with that pick actually. Mm-hmm. He's six six. He's a big curveball and a heavy fastball. Sounds a lot like Noah Syndergaard, doesn't it? Yeah. Bad comp. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, what are some other names that maybe the Mets won't be going after, but that we should be looking out for in this draft? Who are some of the people who you think are going to be stars coming out of this draft? Um. Well, we in the next couple of days, next week, whatever, you're going to see on Amazing Avenue proper. Uh, ton of different profiles of guys that are going to be drafted um you know in around the, when the Mets will be picking so for our listeners you know you can tune in next week and see a bunch of guys for me um the guys that I like the most that I think have the most potential in that kind of in that range are um three players uh Alex Kirilov, TJ Zoik and Josh Lowe um Kirilov is a high school outfielder. He has a good. Uh, his father is a batting coach, uh, uh, amateur batting coach. You know, uh, doesn't work for a major league team, but he has his own business. So whatever, amateur professional. But he has a uh, an advanced swing for a kid his age, and he's projected to be a, a pretty decent outfielder. Uh, T.J. Zoic is a pitcher. He's currently with the University of. Uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, his his father was drafted by the Kansas City Royals in the seventies, but his career kind of stalled out due to a torn rotator cuff. So Zoic has the you know um, genetics, whatever you want to call it. Um, That's an eighty name he's... too. That's an eighty name. Zoic. It is. It is. Yeah. I thought it was. It's spelled Z E U C H. So I thought it was Zooch, but mm-hmm. I was listening to an interview and. He said they said Zoic, so Zoic is a better name, though. It's almost Scooby Doo esque. <laughs> <laughs> but he's uh, he's six seven. He has um, this was back in May, but his his ground ball rate at the time among NCAA pitchers was number one. He didn't have enough innings to qualify um, because he sat out at the beginning of the year uh, due to a groin injury. But it was something crazy. It was like he had like a 70% ground ball rate. <laughs> so his, yeah, his fastball is very, you know, it has a lot of sync to it. It touches about 97. Uh, he throws uh, a really sharp slider that his father taught him. And then he has some other developing pitches. 
And then probably the most intriguing of those three, Lowe. Um, he's a high school um, pitcher and third baseman. It's not, I mean, a lot of um, players at that age, they'll pitch and they play on, you know, the, and they're position players. But Lowe has the ability to hit and the ability to pitch such that he could theoretically be drafted based on his skill at, at either. Um, most people, you know, most scouts and baseball executives are believe that, you know, he's going to stick at um, a position as opposed to pitching just because, you know, you get more at-bats, more appearances throughout the year, whatever. Um, but at the plate, you know, he has a good swing to it. It gets kind of long and he strikes out a bit, but he has a lot of power. And then on the mound, um, he throws, you know, he sits in the mid-90s and he reaches the mid-90s already. Um, and his slider and change both flash plus pitches at times. Um, but, you know, it, he, he's uh, still developing both. And defensively, he's kind of a mixed bag. But he's, he's just, just an interesting player because of his duality. Lucas, anyone to add to that? Uh, yeah, uh, so I was looking at another high school pitcher, in addition to Manning, who's probably my favorite guy, was Forrest Whitley, another really tall dude, 6'7", uh, has a low 90s, uh, he started with 90s ball last year, but since then it's uh, jumped up, he can do ball 87, he's got a really hard curveball, and he sometimes throws, turns it into more of a slider, so sometimes it gets <laughs> slurvy, but at times it's very hammerish, um, same with Manning, there's signability concerns, like Steve was talking about, with all the picks we have, let's have uh, that risk not signing a guy because um, have the picks to recover from it. Uh, another guy that I saw, I think I mentioned him already, was Zach Collins, the catcher uh, from Miami. Probably not going to stick at the position, but plenty of people believe that the bat is very special. Um and it is uh, like I've already harped on it twice about drafting a guy who's probably a first baseman. Um, but I think his bat, my, what little I know about uh, mechanics and uh, certainly the statistics he put up in college are very impressive. I think the bat's legit, even if you move to first base. And you never know if, I mean, we heard that Conforto was a terrible outfielder and then he turned himself into a, basically an average one. So maybe there's some hope along the defensive spectrum there. And then the last guy, and it's my Cal homerism here, is Dalton Jeffries. He's a right-hander <laughs> from Cal. He's undersized. He's only six ball, and he's had an older injury that kept him out for a solid two months this or month and a half season. What when he was on the mound, he straight up dominated. Strikes dude out, dudes out more than a batter. Inning, uh, ERA below two. Uh, he's got he's very polished for a college arm. He's his best off-speed pitch is probably his uh, changeup, and doesn't he didn't throw his slider as much this season from the starts I saw. Apparently, he flashed it more with Team USA in the summer. Uh, one of the digs on him is that he might not have a, a good put-away pitch at the major league level. It's easy to strike guys that you have even a reasonable changeup because no one has a change a good changeup. Um, but when you think about it, in the Mets' ability. 
give magically gift their pitchers awesome sliders, uh, <laughs> you kind of wonder if you're better off taking a guy with polish, control, and some better command, uh, and then letting Worthing go to work on him and extend a trip spring or whatever, and adding that strikeout pitch, as opposed to taking a power arm like, say, uh, who's the guy from Vanderbilt? Uh, Sheffield, Jordan Sheffield. A uh, guy who has that kind of strikeout stuff, but mediocre command. Uh, just with the Mets' develop, recent success developing pitchers and adding that kind of slider, that wipeout slider, rather command control polish uh, pitcher like Jeffries. That's interesting. I. Uh... I kind of like that idea of because Worthing can teach anybody a slider that we should be drafting players that don't necessarily, you know, or, or that, that, that would play into that strength you know, down the road. That's, that's an interesting concept. And it's probably a bit disingenuous and probably overly optimistic. But... Oh, yeah, of course. But <laughs> but it's a, it, it's it, a fun thought exercise. And plenty of those guys with no command or control never get command and control and turn into mediocre middle relievers or whatever so uh maybe you go for a higher floor listen to a discussion of do we want more packed talent with the team contending you might want the guy who's more polished already who could contribute sooner um so there's lots of factors at play there um what would really surprise you guys in the draft coming up what would be a really shocking turn of events you know that Again, keeping on the spectrum of realistic here. Um, that Jason Groom drop all the way to the Mets <laughs> because he started out the season more or less the unanimous number one pick. And on most um, mocks, he's probably fallen down to maybe you know five, six, seven around there. So there's there's issues there that have caused teams to pass on him and if somehow some way he fell all the way down to the Mets that would be uh pretty cool but it's not going to happen <laughs> that'd be absolutely incredible <laughs> I think uh the most recent mock drafts from D1 and um let me one has him going fourth and uh who is this this is Mayo who I don't like as much as Callus but Mayo posted this five days ago and he has Groom going fourth um, as does D1 Baseball, and they posted this today. So he might have slipped a little. I don't think he's slipping all the way. That'd be pretty awesome, though. Makeup concerns or whatever, and then you have the, the ridiculousness with the New Jersey Baseball ever. Somehow going back to your home high school after being away for a year doesn't count as during, but <laughs> we're discussing. Uh... Lucas, anything to add? What would be a, a a really surprising part of this draft? Honestly, I'll be surprised if they don't if they don't wind up with uh, Will Craig because it seems every year that, that they're most connected to the the, the draft day. It feels like um, the only way, way I don't see them taking cred is if the Yankee Craig is if the Yankees take him or someone else surprises and takes him. Apparently, looking at him and they pick one spot in front of the Mets. Um, but assuming that Craig is there, I don't. I don't think there's any way the Mets don't tanker. They're just a sucker for the approach. Takes a long box, hits the shit out of the ball kind of play. Intensely limited. 
I didn't really come up with a shocker as to who would fall. It's almost like a an insane extra because it, you you just never know once of you course. get past. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I really not even bothered looking into either the comp pick that the Mets are getting in the second round because at that point it's it's just a crapshoot. You don't know who's left. Every draft board at that point, you know, every mock draft board at that point is radically different. So it's really just no point in really addressing it until it actually, uh, the picks actually occur. Right. Right. Uh, I guess the last thing I want to, I want to leave our listeners with, if, if you guys were in positions of power in the Mets or any other team's organization, what do you feel is the, um, sort of the biggest sin of the draft right now? What are people, what are teams doing that they shouldn't be doing in the draft? What, What would you avoid if you were in that position? Honestly, I think, and maybe this is my fantasy baseball bias slipping into things. I feel like when you draft for floor, within reason, of course, you don't want to draft uh, Tuki Tsaint every time. But when you when you when you have such a heavy, some teams are way too conservative in terms of. Um, and you could maybe argue the Mets are a bit guilty of it themselves, especially. I mean, you could look back at Sakini. Okay, that's a high floor theoretically pick. Um, so, especially with the first round pick, uh, you role players will pop up. You don't need to draft as much for floor. Still do that. Steve? Yeah, it's, it's it's a good it's a good philosophy. I mean, with your first round, those are the guys that are just gonna have the most stuff. So you should just just always roll the dice because with you know, depending on if they're college, you have maybe you know three two to three years you know of solid development before you know there really should be any realistic major league expectations. High school guys, you know, a good five years or so before there's any kind of major league expectations. So there's there's a lot of time to tutor the players, to teach them what they need to do to, to work out, you know, issues in their swings, or the deliveries, whatever. So if there's a guy that has, you know, every player for the most part who's not Mike Trout is going to have warts. So, <laughs> you know, if a guy has talent and he's available and his warts are fixable in you know might as well just roll the dice because most draftees you know flame out anyway so (laughs) you're just kind of not setting yourself up to lose by picking someone who's a safer pick but you kind of are so you're even thinking of it from a roster construction standpoint you can almost always afford unless the will ponds to (laughs) that's if you need them like, there's no reason the Mets shouldn't have signed Ryan Rayburn or Steve Pierce and have a deep bench and not have to worry about developing that. The key to building a good roster is developing your own stars because it kills you to buy stars. So you're better off going, especially early, you should go for upside. Right. And I mean, not to knock the player or the people, but, you know, people shouldn't be clamoring for TJ Rivera. I'm just saying. <laughs> no. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end our conversation. Um, will you guys come back after the draft and discuss the Mets picks? Of course. Sure. Yeah, I put you on the spot there. You couldn't have said no to me anyway. <laughs> so we'll be back in just a second. 
Hey everyone, Steve Schreiber here. It's time for your This Week in SNY Minute here on Amazing Avenue Audio. So last Friday, uh, the Mets played the Dodgers and Keith Hernandez uh, opened up the top of the sixth inning by asking Ron Darling if his kids were coming in for Memorial Day. Uh, Ron responded by saying that his kids weren't, that they were just in the week before, which led back to the question of whether Keith's kids were coming in. And so, as he mentioned the names of his daughters, well, one of them slipped his mind, and Gary had a great uh, reaction to it. Ron, are your, all your family coming in for tomorrow? Uh, they're not because they were here last week. My son graduated from college, so they're all in last week, so they couldn't do both weekends. So they had a choice, and college graduation is more important. I guess yeah. so. I got all my family in. Yeah, that's all the, all the daughters, Mary, Jesse. Who's the other one? Oh, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Melissa. Uh, <laughs> they're watching. I had to throw that shot Tony, with Antonio Cromartie? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Throw that one in for Melissa. I'll make her smile. They're all watching right now, by the way. The two hubbies. So that's all for your This Week in SNY Minute. I'm Steve Schreiber. Back to Amazing Avenue Audio. Hi, this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue. And today we're going to talk about what to expect from James Loney, the newest member of the New York Mets. They just acquired him days ago from the San Diego Padres for cash considerations. He was playing for the Padres AAA affiliate, the aptly named El Paso Chihuahuas, because the Padres don't really have use for a veteran, light-hitting first baseman who hasn't played defense particularly well in a while. And they're still struggling to overcome the trades made by their general manager, A.J. Preller, two winters ago when he tried to accelerate a rebuild and it ended up failing. So they're looking to build themselves back up again. The Mets need a replacement for Lucas Duda now that he's hit the DL pretty hard. With a back injury isn't expected and is expected to be out for at least a month. So the Mets get James Loney. He was last seen in the major leagues in 2015, so just last year. With the Tampa Bay Rays, he had 104 games played, 388 plate appearances, hit 280, 322 on base percentage, 357 slugging percentage, strikeouts, strikeout rate only 9%. That was Surprisingly, the lowest of his career, although not in a full season, it was about two-thirds of a season. So he's not going to strike out a lot. He's going to move the line along. He's not going to make a lot of outs. So while he's not going to help you a ton with hitting for power, he's also not going to hit into a bunch of outs. He's a pretty low-risk but low-reward player. And the Mets just looking for a placeholder. They don't have to give up much for him. They just had to give up cash. This is the type of player they were looking for. Now, in his first game with the Mets against the White Sox on Tuesday night, he went 0 for 4 and committed an error. And that made me want to look up his defensive stats. Because considering he's a 
first baseman who doesn't hit for a ton of power, you figure he at least played defense pretty well. But according to Fangraphs, he's been below league average for pretty much his entire career. So if you're a Mets fan, don't expect too much on the glove side of things from Loney. What's funny about him is that his career highs in home runs is 15, and he did that back in 2007 when I believe he still had rookie eligibility with the Dodgers and only played in 96 games that year. And since then, he has a lot of seasons where he played over 150 games. He has plenty of full seasons, and he didn't reach that many home runs. He would hit 13, 13, 10, 12. Those are his home runs from 2008 until 2011. And then he got moved around, and his power dipped even more. But, like we said, the Mets can't expect too much power from a guy who has bounced around the league, was playing for the AAA affiliate of a team that's not very good right now. So what he's going to do is he's not going to strike out too much With El Paso this year, he was only slugging 424 in the Pacific Coast League, but he was getting on base 37% of the time. And that's about what you want from him. He's probably not going to slug that much now that he's in the majors and not in the great hitting environment of the Pacific Coast League. The Mets don't really need him to slug at all. They just need him to move that lineup along, take some walks, don't make any terrible outs and move the lineup along to the guys that can do damage. Although he won't be probably be batting in front of UNS Cespedes and Michael Conforto. He'll be batting in the back, but the point is move the lineup along. Hopefully don't play horrible defense, and he's going to get on base more often than Wilmer Flores will against right-handed pitchers, and that's really the point. could play Wilmer Flores against left-handed pitchers, and still explore the kind of potential that he has. And then you could play Loney against righties so that you don't get killed because Wilmer Flores, he's going to put a lot of balls in play. He's also going to make a lot of outs. So James Loney gives this Mets team a higher floor while Lucas Duda is on the shelf. And that's why the Mets made the move. This is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio. days ago, Chris McShane got to speak to Jonathan Mayo, MLB.com's draft and prospect expert about the 2016 draft and about the Mets and what they might do in that draft. So here you go. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Jonathan Mayo of MLB.com. You've seen him on MLB Network uh, covering the draft, and you can find all of his work at MLBPipeline.com. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, all right. Our pleasure. So uh, we'll get right into it. The Mets have sort of leaned towards high school players a little bit in the first round under Sandy Alderson in the draft. Uh, Brandon Nimmo, Michael Fulmer, Gavin Cicchini, uh Dom Smith, even last year when they only had the second round pick, they went Desmond Lindsay. And then they've had a couple college players in Kevin Ploiecki and Michael Conforto. But, you know, teams like to say they like to take the best player available. That's something the Mets consistently say. But do you buy that their philosophy is unchanged now that the major league team is good? Yeah, I don't think that what they've been doing at the major league level uh, alters 
what they do, especially early on in the draft. You know, maybe uh, they target things a little bit differently as the draft goes on. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of first round, then they're going to take the, the best player available. Now, that said, when you have a deeper farm system, maybe you're never going to draft for need. But if you feel like, hey, we, you know, we have some, a bunch of guys at the upper levels, uh, if, if we go a certain route, you know, maybe we can have guys like just a step behind them uh, as opposed to three steps behind them. So uh, that, that could come into play a little bit, but I think by and large, they're looking at uh, what the strengths of a draft are, where they feel uh, there'll be pockets of talent uh, based on where they're going to pick and, and then they react accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's also changed uh, certainly has a, a bigger effect on the minor league in draft side is the departure of Paul De Podesta. Uh, obviously, Tommy Tannis has been there uh, with this minor league uh, side of the front office for a while. He's been involved in the drafts. But, you know, do, what, do you see anything changing in that regard with De Podesta now working for the Cleveland Browns and, you know, sort of everybody filling his responsibilities in that front office? I mean, obviously, when you have someone um, with his credentials, or rather had someone with his credentials with a strong voice, uh, uh, not just in the draft room, but kind of uh, across various parts of scouting and player development, uh, when he leaves, uh, that's going to have an impact. Uh, But, you know, I think that uh, he helped set up a system uh, that can continue even after he or anybody else uh, leaves or anybody else comes in as long as they are on board with the same kind of system. And, and since Tommy is there and, and, and Sandy Alderson is there, I mean, I, I think that it's going to be much of the same. I don't think you're going to see anything vastly different. It's not like a new GM or a new scouting director with a completely different philosophy came in and tried to sort of scuttle all of the, uh, all the things that have been put in place uh, before Paul left. Yeah. It- as for the uh, the last few drafts, you know, they, we've got a few of them now that this front office, you know, with Dave Podesta or without has been in place for a few years. Uh, you know, what do you think the the draft legacy is so far? You know, how how do you think the Mets have done relative to other teams in the in the past few? Well, you know, I think because they took so many high school guys, that remains to be seen. Uh, and, you know, comparing them to others is, is tough. But, you know, based on where guys are, um, I think, you know, the, 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 so far so good, you know. Um, yeah, I know Brandon Nemo got, was, was drafted now five years ago, but considering that he came from Wyoming and the fact that he's in AAA and performing well and he's just 23 uh, all, all this season, um, yeah, that's fine. Uh, 2012, Gavin Cicchini, I mean, he's in AAA and hitting well. Uh, knocking on the door at age 22. And then Dom Smith is, uh, he's doing fine in, in his first ta- real taste of double A. He's not lighting the world on fire, but he's only 20. Um, he doesn't, uh, doesn't turn 21 until later this, this month. So I think, you know, so far everyone is, is headed in the right direction. And, uh, you know, I've said this a bunch of times about a guy like Nimmo that uh, there are some people like, well, he hasn't really, he's not become a, an impact guy, or, you know, is he a tweener? Is he a fourth outfielder? If someone had said when they drafted Brandon Nimmo in 2011, that he would be in AAA at this point and performing well, uh, I don't think 
anyone would have any complaints with that, given what a, a project it, it looked like it was going to be since, uh, you know, the level of competition, lack of high school team, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, so far, I think it's, it's done well, at least at the top. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Obviously, you can't really evaluate a draft uh, until several years down the line to see which guys make it to the big leagues and which guys don't. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Nimmo, I think, is a guy who's seen some prospect fatigue a little bit among Mets fans, you know, because, as you mentioned, he's been around for so long. Um, and, you know, he got off to a bit of a slow start this year, but it's encouraging, you know, without having had the chance to see him play. Uh, but just seeing what he's been doing, especially over the last month, you know, it, it seems like he's holding his own uh, there in AAA. And Fulmer is a guy who they turned into Ioannis Cespedes, who, you know, I don't think I don't think if he hadn't been traded to the Mets that there would have been any chance that he wound up signing with the Mets over the winter. Right. Right. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and listen, with, with Nimmo, you know, had – some injuries um which haven't helped just in terms of development because he needs you know a, a lot of at best but and this is a guy with a 381 career on base percentage in the minors now i'm not like a crazy crazy stat guy but i mean that approach is going to play you know so if at the very very worst he is a fourth out a fourth outfielder he could be a really really good one i mean the power hasn't come like people thought but I think he's going to hit. I think he's going to be the kind of guy who's going to contribute to a winning team. And that's really, you know, what what you want. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's certainly encouraging to hear. And with Smith, um, you know, have you heard anything different with him? You know, obviously, you pointed out his age. He's pretty young for the league. You know, he's he's done okay so far. He's hit a few home runs. The overall line isn't going to jump off the page, but – you know, it's it's respectable. Um, have you heard anything? Conditioning was a big question for him in the off season. Anything different in that regard, or uh, you know, just in terms of things he might be doing a little bit better or worse? Uh, I think it's more of the same with him. Uh, you know, give him some time to sort of get his feet under him in in Double A. Uh, you know, this is a guy I think who's going to continue to hit for average. And then the question is, well, when, when, and if is the power going to come? And he's been a bat first guy, and, and you know the the Mets have wanted him to really just focus on developing as a hitter, thinking the power is eventually going to come. Is he going to hit 30 homers a year? I don't know. Maybe, probably not. Um, but if he hits 300 and hits say 15 to 18 and drives in 90 to 100, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to complain about that. Uh, yeah, conditioning, you're going to want to keep an eye on. I saw him in the spring. He looked fine. He's not your prototypical first baseman. He's not big and tall, uh, but he can really hit. I think the numbers by the end of this year in double A are going to be there. And we'll be talking about a guy in triple A at age 21, knocking on the big league door. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think, uh, I think Smith on the backfields in spring training was when we we ran into each other down there in in Port St. Lucie. Um, So I guess looking ahead a little bit, in your latest mock draft, you had a couple of college guys going to the Mets. Uh, a third baseman named Will Craig at the 19th pick and a catcher, Chris Oakey, at 31. Um, you know, I know you said uh, with one of them, uh, I think it was with Craig, that, you know, when a player is tied to a team so often, 
is that something you, you know you said there that you heard that is that seeming like an obvious pick for them if he's there at 19 <laughs> i mean you know they're in the draft in general but this, this year in particular there's no obvious but that has been a name that has been mentioned a lot with the Mets. Um, <clears throat> now, if they can get a sense that he'll be there at 31, maybe they go in a different direction at 19. But I don't think they're, you know, they'd be sure of that. So they may want to get the guy they really want to get. Um, you know, he's a guy who can really hit. He's a college performer. There are not a lot of college bats in this class. Um, so. You know, he would be now that they've got all these younger hitters at the upper levels, a guy that could come in right behind them and be like fairly quickly in the next wave. Um, you know, the 31, when you're doing a mock, especially two weeks out, but really at any point in time, all you're really trying to do is put a guy that you feel fairly confident the team is discussing. And Chris Oakey is one of those guys who. His name has not come up a ton, but he's performed well. He's one of the few college catchers in the class who actually will most certainly catch and has hit a little bit. There are one or two guys who are, you know, just plus defenders and haven't hit. You know, Zach Collins and Matt Dice, who are the two other college catchers mentioned in the first round, can really hit. Uh, the overwhelming consensus is that neither of them will catch at the big league level. So, uh, you know, I think – Oki is one of those guys who could sneak up uh, and land at the back in the back end of the first round. And, you know, I do know that it looks like the Mets are looking at college players. Um, that doesn't mean that if somebody high ceiling dropped down, let's say Matt Manning, high school right-hander from Northern California dropped down because of the extra pick, they might have some flexibility with their draft pool. Maybe they could go that, you know, that route. But, uh, you know, as of right now, anyway, that kind of looks like the direction they're headed in. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not that the system is devoid of catching prospects, uh, but, you know, you, you sort of have the top two playing in the major leagues. I mean, Travis Darno is hurt right now uh, and hasn't been considered a prospect for a, a little while, but he and Kevin Ploiecki were at least prospects of varying degrees w with their pedigrees. Uh, but in the system right now, you know, I think Ali Sanchez might be one of the more exciting names, but he's far away. Uh, th there yep. isn't anybody else who you could say, you know, you could plop in at uh, at a, a mid-level in the minors and in the next year or two who might excite you. Not really. I mean, you know, if uh, uh, Patrick Mazeka can actually stick behind the plate, right? He looks, you know, he's shown he can hit a little bit, but he's also in, you know, twenty-two in the South Atlantic League. Uh, let, let's see what he does the upper levels and it the jury's really out on the on the catching still and Ali Sanchez as you said is quite a ways away so you're right um, you know that doesn't mean that you necessarily use a first round pick for a catcher uh, but if you really like Oki and you think he's going to be a big leaguer most people do um, then maybe you go and get him there uh, because he may not be there come the next time the Mets pick um, and then, you know, who would be there? Uh, there's not a lot of catching in this class, in this draft class. So if you're going to, if you're going to get a catcher, you may need to do it, you know, in the early going. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like catcher and shortstop are the, the two positions that we hear constantly, you know, well, this guy might not stick at this position. 
because guys, you know, younger ages can do a little bit more and they, they're probably better than their peers, but they, you know, once they get going into professional ball, it's a little bit of a different story at both spots. Yep. Um, so I know you mentioned Manning, uh, any other players who might conceivably fall to the Mets at 19, who would be, you know, guys who are seen in the, in the top 10 in terms of talent, do you see any of them potentially falling in because of he's you know. he's the one that's been mentioned the most because of potential price tags Ian Anderson from upstate New York and I'm, and I'm not sure that he was a uh, a absolute consensus top 10 or top 15 but you know in that vicinity uh northeast guys are a little harder to scout and he missed a little time so it's been a little up and down but he's another guy who could drop a little a little tiny bit and you know and then the the signability might come into play so having the the extra first round pick uh could come in handy if the Mets wanted to go that route um yes yeah, they're in a sort of an interesting spot for a team coming off a world series appearance to have two you know two first round picks one in a decent spot it's not really that much farther back in the draft than they had been over the last few years when they had some of those Martins picks. Um, In terms of the overall draft class, where do you see this one coming into it compared to the last couple of years? It's not a great class overall, especially up up top. Um, There is some depth and the, you know, the strength is, uh, is high school pitching, um, which is the, the ultimate high risk, high reward, right? There's some teams that just won't go down the high school pitching uh, path because it's too risky. Uh, so the fact that it's strength makes it interesting because it's always hard. Usually what happens is right when the draft comes around teams, you know, even if they were thinking about a high school pitcher, uh, will, when push comes to shove, go the quote unquote safer route and, and take a college player. And, uh, you know, so some of these high school arms that were rating really highly, um, might end up sort of uh, sliding a little tiny bit because, you know, some teams are, are a bit risk averse. Um, and, I, and I think that it's extremely uh, possible that there might be some, uh, you know, around for the Mets to at the very least consider, um, you know, with each of their first round picks. Yeah. The Mets used a, a fairly high pick on Andrew church, <laughs> uh, you know, and he, he was a, pitcher coming out of high school who we've seen you know he's had two great starts now but it's taken some time uh from both to to stay on the field and to perform well you know that that's i think a good recent example not that he was a first rounder but a good recent example of the sort of path you might see from a high school pitcher in in terms of the mets yeah i mean the 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 fact of the matter is and that's the thing with the high school pitcher is that Yes, they, they break down. They might need surgery. They also might be superstars. Um, you know, so uh, and it happens that this year, and this is this is if they wanted to go with a pitcher, um, the college pitching class is not great. Now, right around when the Mets pick nineteen thirty-one, there are some very interesting arms that could come into into consideration if they want to go that route, but. There isn't like a high-end guy who might fall down to them uh, or a guy who looks like oh, a future top-of-the-rotation guy. So 
let's say hypothetically a Matt Manning, who, you know, ultra athletic dad played in the NBA. He played basketball six foot seven, a lot of projection can get better mid to upper nineties already. Uh, You know, he could be a top of the rotation guy. If it all clicks, it also could come apart and he could get hurt. Um, That's, you know, again, true of any pitcher, but there is a feeling that a high school pitcher, there's much more risk. Um, Especially when a guy can throw that hard, that young, uh, you know, so I I think those are the things that they have to try to balance out when they're trying to figure out what they want to do. All right. Well, I want to end it, I guess, with a a Phillies question. Uh, As Mets fans aren't, I don't think, overly concerned with the Phillies at the major league level yet but their system is highly touted. They've got some young guys already at the major league level who uh, who are playing well. So what are they going to do? And I know what the latest mock that you guys uh, posted says, but what, has anything changed? What are they going to do with the first overall no. pick? <laughs> I, I, think it, I think it is still up in the air. Uh, I wouldn't say consensus, but there's a general leaning towards thinking they're going to take A.J. Puck from Florida. Um, but it's not a slam dunk. He hasn't exactly run away and hid with the way he's performed this year. He pitched extremely well in the SEC tournament. Um, you know, so that certainly helps. Uh, but they're looking at a number of the bats right at the at the top of the list. I mean, there's a list of six or seven guys uh, total that I think they're still discussing. Uh, you know, and it may not be until right before that they make a final determination of what they want to do they're trying to find a balance between talent level and money um and if say there isn't a guy that screams to them this guy should be number one maybe they take a guy they really like save more money than they would and then if one of those aforementioned high risk high reward pitchers say drops down to them in the second round uh they can spend that money there and then uh, their draft seems even better but uh Right as of right now, if I were to do my final mock right now, I would probably leave Puck in the number one spot. All right. Well, uh, we're looking forward to seeing you on MLB Network during the draft. And thanks again for coming on. And hopefully, we'll uh, you know we'll get a chance to catch up on some of these guys again next year. You know where to find me. All right. Take care. segment this week by Kate Feldman. Kate, we have a plethora of emails. Thank you all for emailing. You can always email the show at podcast at amazinavenueaudio.com. We are going to start with a question from Tom. Uh, Tom's email is quite long. He has an idea for a segment, Hidden Gems of City Field. I like that. Uh, Next time I'm at the ballpark, I'll try and take note of a couple of good spots. Um, he talked about the pitching a little bit and, uh, you know, says good things. And he kind of complains about Eric Campbell being in the organization, being in the, on the Major League roster. And, well, that's been taken care of. So Well done, Tom. Yes, well done. Thank you, Tom, for uh, triggering that demotion. Um, but he really wants to know about first base. He wants to know what we do with first base. He asks about maybe moving right over there or cutting ties with Duda sooner than later if he's damaged goods. 
and he 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 knows that's a gross overestimation, but he wants to see what the Mets should do about first base. Now, he sent this email before the Mets had traded cash considerations for James Loney. So, Kate, it's been two games. What do you think of James Loney, New York Mets so far? The exact same thing I thought of James Loney, Tampa Bay Ray. James Loney is fine. He's probably not going to hurt you. He's not going to hit any home runs. He's not going to really do a whole lot, but he'll be fine, and he was pretty much free. Yeah, I can't be too mad about sending cash to the Padres for a AAA player. No, and the Rays are paying his whole contract. I right. mean, it was a, you know, there's no risk to this move. No, and he's he's a better option at first base than Campbell. Mhm. I mean, I think I'm a better option at first base than Campbell, and I haven't <laughs> played organized baseball since the 4th grade. Um, I can't run, and I'm a better option in first base than Eric Campbell. Uh, you know, but I, I, I say that joking. You know, Soup is my daughter's favorite baseball player because of his nickname of Soup. And, you know, a four-year-old is easily amused by that, so I have a little soft spot for Eric Campbell. But, you know, in, in all reality, he was the best of the options that was on the table at the moment. You know, he didn't cost him anything. He didn't um, – he's not blocking anybody right now. We're not calling up Dom Smith. Nobody say that. It's not happening. It It is certainly not happening anytime soon. You know, um, until Flores starts hitting a little bit, I don't see this as a bad thing. Until Duda comes back, I don't see this as a bad thing. I don't think he's a player that necessarily has bench value for the Mets in any capacity. But is he better off the bench than, say, Ty Kelly? Probably. I mean... Yeah. Um, I mean... <laughs> but 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 what's his positional flexibility there? So that, that's my whole thing, is that if you're going to have a player on the bench, he has to have some value. He's a left-handed first baseman, just like Duda is. Mm-hmm. So unless you're using him exclusively in case of injury for Duda, I don't really see his role on the team. No, he probably doesn't. I mean... I don't, I mean, you know, they said, what they say, six to eight weeks for Duda? I yeah. can't imagine that's all it's going to be. It's probably closer to eight to ten. Right. Then you get rehab, and then, you know, it's going to be a few months. Mm-hmm. In theory, you know, Collins will platoon Loney and Flores at first if we have a third baseman. A very but, big if. Right, exactly. You know, lo- like you said, Loney was the best option I'm not enamored by him whatsoever, but he's fine. You know, he shouldn't be playing first base on a major league, you know, competitive team, but he's better than Eric Campbell. I wonder if, you know, I I, I, uh, I presume the Mets could send him down, right? Um, does he have options at this point? He's been in the league forever. I mean, he was playing in AAA for... I, I I don't know what happens when, when a minor league contract is traded like that. I, but then again, I mean, you probably clear waivers even if he doesn't have options. That's so. very true. That is very true. I can't imagine anyone, sna- you know, if someone was going to snap up James Loney, they would have before the Mets did. That is absolutely true. Um, Tom goes on to ask in his email about Darno and... Um, you know, he, he has concerns about Darno's injury history, and I, I think those concerns are shared by most. I think even those of us, and I'll, I'll include myself in this, um, I think even those who were maybe not so 
sold on the injury-prone thing because a lot of his injuries have been fluky and because they weren't exactly chronic in one area of his body. We were all kind of overplaying the injury-plagued thing. But now he's been injured in just about every conceivable way. <laughs> you know, I think the injury concerns are becoming more real. Um, do you think that he is a player that the Mets can pencil in for even 100 games a year at this point, or no? Uh, probably not. I mean... I could see it, but I don't know that that's worth the risk. I mean, at this point, you you know, perfect world, you do need Ploiecki and Darno up at the same time. Or not even Ploiecki, you need two major league catchers on your roster. And that's that's hard to do, but Darno is just so risky. Darno is risky, and I mean, I, I love his bat. I think his bat is very real. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I definitely understand why the Mets want to maybe put him off the catch, put him off catching for a while, move him to first base or third base or left field or wherever you're going to put him. But I wouldn't give up on his bat just yet, especially because offense from catcher is so hard to come by. Right. Uh, I do think it makes it complicated when he's healthy, what you do with Ploiecki. Um, because, I mean, to be honest, and, and granted, it's not a hard bar to cross here, but it seems like Rene Rivera has been doing pretty well for himself. His catching's been, you know, nice. His throwing's okay. And any, any offense he gets kind of gravy from your backup catcher, right? It's not a... It is if he were your backup catcher, but... Well, that's I what mean, I'm saying. Is it, when Darno yeah. comes back, do you think that they send Plowecki down and keep Rivera up? Um, I think it depends on when Darno comes back. If it, you know, because it was, we were hearing that he was, you know, going to start rehab and then Terry said, no, just kidding, that's not close to true. I think if you're getting close to September or August even, you expand your rosters, I think you send Ploiecki down and you bring him up, you know, on the first day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a huge fan of Rivera. Again, watched him as a Ray. <laughs> I know that it's the defense and the framing, but... It's just the offense kills me, especially coming from Darno to Rivera. Yeah. It's a steep, a steep drop. Yeah. And Tom's last thing he wants to bring up here is if we could improve the team via trades, what moves would you make? Uh, my big one is I don't think people realize how deep the Mets outfield is right now, uh, especially with Marlon Byrd being suspended for 162 games today. You know, Cleveland's going to need an outfielder, and I would try and flip Deaza for whatever they'll give me for him. That was going to be my answer, too. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's good then. Um, <laughs> I you mean, know, it's the easy one right now. It is the easy one right now, but I don't know if there's necessarily a position that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the problem with the Mets right now is that with all these injuries that are still kind of undetermined, we mm-hmm. don't know if they need a third baseman long-term, or they need a first baseman long-term, or a catcher long-term. We just don't know these things. So it's a little bit hard to improve the team via trade when you really don't know what you're going after. Right. And I mean, right now it looks like you need bullpen help. Right. But who knows? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's probably third base is probably your biggest concern. Yeah. But yeah. who knows? You know, these shots could work for David Wright and he'll be back on Friday. Yeah. Or And, you know, if you believe in Wilmer Flores as an offensive player – then yes, mm-hmm. he's slumping right now, but do you really want to acquire somebody to then block him at that position? Right. Or do you, you know, do the whole you move Walker to third and you bring up Dilson Herrera? Right. You know, it's, right. It's the flexibility more than anything. I, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you for your email, Tom. 
Uh, next email is from Oscar. Oscar says, as you guys saw last night, which was not last night because <laughs> this email came in last week, uh, Ligaris went three for four with three RBIs and a home run off a righty. He's been pretty awesome lately, and I think it's pretty clear that he deserves being an everyday player. Uh, he then goes on to mention Eric Campbell starting every day. So, again, thank you, Oscar, for pushing Campbell down to AAA. Um, he goes on to talk about the idea of Michael Conforto at first base and says that he has the bat for first base, and Ligaris brings so much more balance to the lineup. His strikeout rate significantly is lower than Duda's, and I don't think the Mets suffer from a dearth of power. There's little reason to have Duda, who makes the lineup very boom or bust. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, Conforto to first can be something that they'll look into next spring training. But for the time being, what are your guys' thoughts? Uh, what do you think, Kate, of the Conforto to first base idea? I think I'm tossing Darno a first baseman's glove first. I know that Conforto was tossed around as an option, and then was well, Terry's line is you don't you you know that's not where you hide your fat kid or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. <laughs> Whatever that quote was. Yeah. I don't know that you screw with Conforto right now. I think he's playing better in left than anyone expected him to. Absolutely. I think his hitting, he hasn't been hitting you know, the last few weeks, but his hitting has exceeded what everyone thought it was going to. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hesitant to mess with such a young player. Yeah, I, I think that the, the issue of getting Ligaris more playing time is certainly a legitimate one. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Juan Ligaris fan. Uh, I think that you have to manage your outfield more carefully with getting him into games. I think you have to sit Granderson a little bit more than Terry sitting him. I think yes. you have to maybe think about uh, sitting Conforto maybe one or two days a week, even though I, I'm not a huge fan of that. But, you know, if you really need to get Ligaris into the game, maybe that's what you talk about doing. I just don't see Conforto going to first... A, this year, or B, I don't see that as an upgrade over Duda. No, I am a big fan of Lucas Duda. Yeah, I, I'm a certified Duda fan here. I'm not I'm not one of these people in the closet about it. I, I think Lucas Duda is pretty great. Yeah. And uh, is he a perfect player? No, there's no such thing as a perfect player, except maybe Mike Trout, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and, you know, I, I wouldn't mess with Duda at first. I wouldn't mess with Ligaris, I mean, with uh, Conforto and Left. You know, good teams have the problem of good players not getting enough at bats. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since the Mets have had to really worry about that. Let's enjoy this I while mean, we I can have this, it. Yeah, I said this. I mean, it was a few months ago at this point, but we went into this season thinking that Alejandro Diaz was going to be your starting center fielder. Yep. So it's like I said, it's a good problem to have. Yeah, and these things tend to work themselves out a little bit too. <laughs> And because um, it's Mets, it'll be by injury. Of course it will be by injury. Of course. Um, you know, the other thing is, uh, I think that Terry could be a little bit more prudent in... Like, for instance, today, if you watch Conforto today, by the third at bat, he just looked lost. I mean, he mm-hmm. did not look at this lefty. And at that point, why not bring in Cespedes to play left and give Conforto a break? Or if if Cespedes was starting the game at that point, move Cespedes over to left and bring Ligaris in. You know there there are ways to manage it in the fifth or sixth inning without necessarily starting without necessarily benching somebody to get Ligaris in the game. 
Not well, that that's I, not that it, last year. Right, Garrison right. Coming in, as, you know, an eighth and in defensive replacement, right. which worked reasonably. And I think 2016 Ligaris is better than 2015 Ligaris. Absolutely, at this point. absolutely. I also think that we're going to get to a point where Conforto's true talent level is going to be very clear. I think right now we're still all a little bit confused about it because he wasn't supposed to be this good. Right. And so once we figure out what we really have with him, I think the idea of moving him out of the outfield is going to look a little bit uh, silly once we really get a couple, get another you know half season under our belts with Conforto. All right, our third um, email comes from Max. Oh, sorry, Kate, what were you going to say? No, I said I agree. You're okay. good. Uh, this email comes from Max. He says, Nimmo, Herrera, and Chikini are all in AAA. Herrera's blocked, but they have to try him out sometime. Chikini is injured. And the Mets, Mets only really need help, don't really need help in the outfield, rather. But at some point, you have to look at Nimmo. Um, as a side thought, though not necessarily a good idea, move Conforto to first, then play Nimmo on left? No, we just talked about we're not moving Conforto to first. Um, when do you think we'll get to see these guys? Is it this year, or do you think the Mets are just fine leaving these guys in the minors for a year? Um, okay, well, first of all, Herrera's been in the majors before. And I think you definitely see him this year again. Yes, I think once the rosters expand, if if that late, you're seeing him. If the right injury is for real, and they mm-hmm. move Walker to third, you're going to see Herrera playing every day. Herrera Which is. I think they will. Yeah, I think they're a little bit reluctant to move Walker over there. I think I think Walker is reluctant to move over there. Walker volunteered to move to first when Duda's back went out. So. I mean, everything that I've heard, read, whatever, he seems to be okay to, you know, to move. Right. I hope that's the case. I think that would be great for the Mets. Um, Dilson Herrera mm-hmm. is your starting second baseman next year. I don't see any way around that. I, I don't see Walker taking their qualifying offer. I don't see them offering him a long-term contract. Unless they're offering him a contract to be a super sub of sorts, and those guys just don't get contracts that way. Your super sub gets signed to a one-year deal, two-year deal max. Walker's going to be looking for a lot more than that, especially because he's on pace to hit 40 home runs or whatever it is. You know, He's not going to do that, but he's you know, he's going to have a good offensive year, and he's going to be looking to get paid in the offseason. I don't see Walker on the team. This free agent class is so bad. Everyone yeah. is going to get paid. Yeah, he's going to get paid big time. Um so I think, you know, I think you're going to see Herrera this year, but you might not see him playing every day until next year. Cicchini is an interesting case. Cicchini is uh, blocked at least for the next year by Drupal Cabrera at uh, shortstop. Mm. Um, but I think that Drupal Cabrera is a very competent bench piece sub guy and if they feel highly enough about Cicchini, I could see him moving into a part-time role next year. I don't think it's going to happen necessarily. I, I think Cicchini, if he gets his shot, it's going to be as a bench player, at least to start. And he's going to have to hit his way or you know dazzle with the glove his way into the everyday lineup. I don't think it's going to happen uh, necessarily this year. Maybe next year. I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, and then Brandon Nimmo. Um, you know, Nimmo is... He represents, you know, the first draft class from Sandy Alderson. He certainly hasn't developed the way they hoped he would. Not that he's developed into a useless player, 
but I think they hoped he'd be a star. It looks like he's going to be a fourth or a fifth outfielder. I think when the rosters expand this year, you see Nimmo, but probably not before then, and I certainly don't see him making a playoff roster if that's a thing the Mets need this year. Do you disagree with any of that, Kate? No, I mean, that all seems incredibly reasonable to me. And like I said, outfield is the least of their concerns right now, especially for Nimmo. Yeah. And then uh, Max asks about midseason promotions. Uh, Kate and I were talking before we started recording how we're not the people to ask about this necessarily. (laughs) Um, Personally, he he talks about Dom Smith, Wilmer Becerra, Ahmed Rosario, Robert Gazelman. I could see Gazelman possibly moving up a level. I mean, Gazelman's probably, you know, after Gil Martin and... He's probably, you know, the very top of the second tier of starting pitchers right now. Yeah. They don't have a whole lot. I could see him being called up for a spot start. Yeah. Or maybe when the rosters expand. But I don't see Gazelman making an impact in the major league level much this year. Uh, I could see uh, Becerra or Rosario or Smith maybe making, a, you know, going up one level midseason. But... I'm not knowledge enough, knowledgeable enough about that to feel really confident. So sorry about that, Max. I promise I'll ask one of the prospect guys, and uh, we'll update you next week. And uh, all right, we're on to our rapid-fire last question by Liam, <laughs> formerly from Philly, now from the Bronx. So he has three important questions. Number one, will Eric Simon appear on the show? <laughs> uh, Eric told me anything I need for the show he's willing to help with, so maybe I'll make him come on. Oh. Everyone put that as one of your questions. Just guilt him into it. Yeah, we can maybe make that happen. No promises, but <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, number two, will Lucas Duda hit 20 home runs next year? If his back isn't broken, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Number three, if I pay you $10, can there be an uh, ARG, an Amazing Avenue regional gathering here, or a live podcast in two weeks? Well, this was sent almost a week ago, so that gives me about a week uh, it's not going to happen, dude. Sorry. Uh, I would like to do a live podcast at some point. I'd be very, very open for that. I think it would be especially fun with this new format to have everybody kind of come up and do their little piece and then have a seat. That could, that could be a fun a fun night or day, but uh, not in two weeks. Maybe this summer, though. We'll talk. And then uh, extra special bonus question, and this one's for you, Kate. If you had to do a fantastic voyage into Matt Harvey to fix him from the inside, who would you take with you? <laughs> This could be current Mets, past Mets, future Mets, podcasters, beat writers, hell, even the random guy begging for change on the street. And then Liam apologizes. He wrote these questions drunk. But so who would you take, Kate, into your fantastic voyage into Matt Harvey? This is a horrifying question because all I can think of is the Magic School Bus right now. Of course. Um, Are you too young to remember Inner Space, the movie? Yeah. Inside. No. It had Martin Sorry. Short. He goes inside someone's body. It's pretty good. I'd bring Martin Short for that reason. Uh, that's very creepy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my first thought is just going to be Ron Darling because he knows everything. That's but... a good point. How about I don't know. How, Harvey's how about... looks better. His yeah, last he, few starts. Yeah, Harvey's looks much, much better. But how about this? I think this is a good compromise. What if we bring Ron Darling and Dr. James Andrews? Hey. There you go. I think we, we've balanced the intellectual mind versus the surgical mind. And uh, and we'll bring Keith along, too, for the stories. <laughs> Keith will definitely like, know a good restaurant to hit up in Matt Harvey, because Keith seems to know a good restaurant everywhere. So 
I think this is going to be a fantastic road trip. Yeah, I'm I'm all for it. And uh, and when I heard Fantastic Voyage, I had I thought of the Coolio songs. We'll we'll bring Coolio along too. He's probably not too busy. Yeah, he could use a, a nice detour into Matt Harvey. Oh. <laughs> well, thanks, Kate. This was something, all right. Yeah. Noel Purcell was on vacation last week, and the week before that. Can you believe that guy taking an actual vacation? I am both angry and jealous. Uh, Just kidding. It's good to have Noel back, and he's going to talk to us about a prospect that is near and dear to his heart. Hey guys, I'm back from my road trip hiatus and ready to talk to you about a Mets prospect who's a personal favorite of mine, uh, who actually was pretty unknown when the Mets drafted him last year uh, in honor of the uh, draft preview edition. We're going to be talking a 2015 pick in Patrick Mazika. Uh, Patrick Mazika originally out of Connecticut um, and then went to Stetson University, uh, the alma mater of one Jacob deGrom. And he is a catcher. He played some first base. Obviously, they'll hope that he can stick at catcher. Uh, the value of a catching prospect being significantly higher than that of a first base prospect, unless the bat is unbelievable. But one of my favorite things about him is that he has an incredible approach at the plate. Um, he he doesn't he doesn't strike out. The dude just does not strike out. It's incredible in his minor league career. He has a 30 to 35 walk to strikeout ratio. In his NCAA career, in 174 games, he struck out 53 times and walked 99 times. Just really an incredible command of the strike zone. Um, puts balls in play. So obviously, um, he's a very patient hitter. He's going to walk plenty. Uh, he doesn't necessarily hit for a ton of power, though he's shown some solid raw power. He had OPSs of over 900 in all three um, college seasons, plus at Kingsport last year. He has an 821 OPS right now, uh, but just a uh, little a hair under a uh, .050 ISO. Uh, so there could be... There's definitely some more power in that bat, but even if he doesn't develop into anything more than, say, a a 5 to 10 home run hitter, somewhere in that range, the fact of the matter is, guys hit 300, above 300 at every single level, continuously. He's hitting 333, 443, 81 right now in Columbia. Last year, he hit 354, 451, 540 at Kingsport. Um, he's 22 years old. The question really is whether he's going to be able to stick a catcher. The bat's what got him drafted, but um, he's certainly, you know, big enough for the position. Uh, he's he's not particularly quick. He's not super polished. He's not, you know, he's not really a great receiver by any means, but his arm is pretty solid. Uh, that's the one thing. Um his arm is, if and if you watch footage of it, you can see his arm uh, definitely would be the defensive tool that carries him and lets him to stay there. Uh, 
the first base roll would obviously be the move he would have to make. Um, if he couldn't catch, and that would significantly put a damper on his major league prospects. But if he keeps raking to the tune he has to this point, uh, the bat will carry him for sure. Ideally, the Mets would like to see him develop more and more as a catcher, but he's clearly already highly advanced at the plate. So with some focus on developing there, perhaps he can become a catcher of the future. Who knows? Welcome to Forgotten Mets. I'm your host, Brian Renzi. With the MLB draft on the horizon, we're going to look back at a first-round draft pick who was on the outside looking in during the Mets' run of success in the 80s, but who was later involved in an incident off the field, which is kind of a counterpoint to the craziness we chronicled with Julio Machado last week. Welcome back to our minds and hearts, Terry Blocker. Terry Blocker was the Mets' first pick fourth overall in the 1981 draft. He was picked ahead of Fred McGriff, Mark McGuire, Frank Viola, David Cohn, Matt Williams, Mark Langston, Sid Fernandez, Paul O'Neill, Ron Darling, Devon White, Tony Gwynn, Mark Gubiza, Kevin McReynolds, and John Elway. The only players the Mets drafted that year that stuck with the parent club were Lenny Dykstra and Mark Carrion. They also drafted Roger Clemens, but their inability to sign him is a whole other story. Blocker was a 6'2", 195-pound left-handed throwing and swinging center fielder coming out of historically black Tennessee State University, drafted after his junior season, where he also starred for the football and basketball teams. Right out of the gate, he dominated the New York Penn League while being league average age, hitting three forty-one with a five seventy slugging percentage. He hit a home run every 19.3 at-bats in the short season, but would never develop the power that his frame suggested, as he never hit more than nine homers in a pro season. He hit at least 300 four times in his Mets minor league career, though, stealing more than 40 bases twice. He made it to AAA Tidewater in 1983 and did well for himself with a 305 average and 24 steals in half a season. Yet there was little hope at cracking the Mets outfield of George Foster, Mookie Wilson, and Daryl Strawberry. Still, he made the Mets out of spring training in 1985 and appeared in a couple of games in April as a pinch hitter and pinch runner until he was sent down when Ray Knight got back from the disabled list. Blocker was recalled when Strawberry went down with a torn thumb ligament, and in his third career start, his first one in center field would ultimately be his last game in a Mets uniform. With the bases loaded, Terry Pendleton of the Cardinals. Yep, that guy. Pendleton sent a fly ball to the gap in right center. Blocker and right fielder Danny Heap were both running full tilt to get there. Either could have caught it, but it appears that neither called for it, resulting in one of the worst collisions you'll ever see. Just as Blocker prepared to catch the ball, his left cleat appeared to skid on the grass, leaving his legs straight and vulnerable as Heap cra- he and Heap crashed into one another. Both players lay motionless as St. Louis runners circled the bases for an inside-the-park grand slam, but as each crossed the plate, they did not celebrate, but instead stared out at the pile of humanity in right field. Blocker was on the disabled list with a knee injury, and while he was there, Mookie Wilson went down with a shoulder injury. Dykstra leapfrogged the inactive Blocker and never looked back. Despite showing strong form when he returned to Tidewater, Blocker, who hit 307 with 20 steals the rest of the year, never got another call-up. 
He was involved in rumors where he might have been traded one for one for Tom Seaver for the 85 stretch run, but that never materialized. The next year, some 25th anniversary season or another, the versatile Kevin Mitchell made the team over him while Blocker played out the year in Tidewater. The Mets signed Lee Mazzilli late that year and then traded Mitchell for McReynolds in the offseason. There was still no room for Blocker, now age 27, who hit 312 with 33 steals in his fifth season at Tidewater in 1987. Now, Dwight Gooden's book, Heat, goes written by Bob Clappish. Uh, there were claims made of racism as to why Blocker never got his shot and why players like Dykstra were promoted over him. In any event, Doc or Bob or whoever seemed to get the key facts about the situation twisted. And the stats speak for themselves. Dykstra had a career 837 OPS in the minors in a season where he stole 105 bases. Blocker's 7-4 OPS in the minors really just doesn't compare. In any event, New York finally gave Terry Blocker a break when they traded him to Atlanta that offseason. His Mets career over with just one single and a walk in 16 plate appearances. He ended up playing the most innings of any Brave in center field in 1988, but struggled to a 212 average and a 533 OPS. By the end of 1989, he was out of a job. He played in the Mexican League for the next four years, and it looked like his baseball journey was over at that point. But of course, baseball went on strike, and owners were looking for replacement players. 35-year-old Terry Blocker answered that call and went to spring training in 1995 with the Braves. That March, a replacement teammate named Dave Shutkowski was held up and murdered in West Palm Beach. Blocker was torn up about this tragedy and took to the streets himself to get answers. To many people, it might sound it might sound totally deranged to risk his life by asking questions in a very shady part of town, but he ultimately obtained the information that immediately led to the arrest of a very dangerous and feared man. The Braves and the police offered Blocker a $10,000 reward, which he flatly refused. And then, while still in the midst of praise, he was released by the team, ending his career. Evidently, his old knee injury was still a problem. And that's where our story ends. It appears Terry Blocker has vanished into anonymity after this heroic act. While he may not have reached his potential as a first-round pick, he proved to be a success as a man, which is indisputably way more important. This has been Forgotten Mets with Brian Renzi. Catch you next time down Hazy Memory Lane. Hi, it's Kate with your weekly Panic City Meter for Mason Avenue Audio. And the last few weeks, it's been a lot about injuries and it's been a lot about pitchers who have been kind of iffy, mostly starting pitchers. But today, as it is about 5.45 on Wednesday and the Mets are about to lose 2-1 to the White Sox in 13 innings, our problem has very quickly and very obviously become the offense. Because Wright is out for who knows how long at this point. If he's going to go on the DL, if he can play. I think we're saying Friday. We don't know yet. Duda's out. Conforto isn't hitting. Neil Walker still isn't really hitting. Cespedes has been a little off lately. And the it just looks ugly right now. I mean, we're watching... The bottom of this inning has been Juan Lagares, Ty Kelly, and Rene Rivera. None of whom should be starting none of whom should be pinch-hitting in the bottom of the 13th inning. And the Mets are just struggling to score runs. And 
the pitching has been better. Matt Harvey, I actually saw him in person on Monday. Matt Harvey looked better. DeGrom looked good today. Matt's looked good yesterday. No Syndergaard is still no Syndergaard. The pitching has been good. The bullpen has been a little iffy. But you can only do so much when your offense is giving you one round of support a night. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of relief coming in. They signed James Loney over the weekend, who is fine. I've talked about this everywhere in the world at this point. James Loney is fine. James Loney will not hurt you at first. James Loney will probably hit 270, 290, but empty power. He's not going to hit home runs like Lucas Duda would have. Gonna drive in some runs. He's gonna hit a lot of singles. He hasn't really even been doing that yet, but it's only been a few days. So I'm just not sure where you're getting any relief from. You know, some of the guys, Conforto will very likely figure it out again. Cespedes is still good. You know, Granderson has looked a lot better lately. Cabrera is still hitting really well. But they just need something. And it's getting a little scary. Because we're just out here. Oh, hey, we got, you know, we got a runner on base. Mets walked, I think we're up to 12 times today. And they drove in one run. And you just, you can't win ball games like that. You know, we did that last June and July, and it didn't work then either. Something has to break eventually, one way or the other. So hopefully by the time I come back next week, the Mets will put a few more runs on the board at least. Just, you know, you need a few. With this pitching staff, you don't need 10 runs a night. You need three, you need four. That's all we're asking for. So until then, this is Kate with Panic City Meter. Thanks, Kate, for pulling double duty with this week's show. And that about does it for episode 188 of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, you can get in touch with the show by emailing us, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Please go to amazingavenue.com and check out all the wonderful work of our contributors, as well as those that haven't shown up on the show just yet. You can follow us on social media. We are Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. And you can follow all the contributors that were a part of this show on Twitter as well. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve Schreiber is at Mr. Underscore Mr. Met. Forgot, almost forgot that all-important underscore. Um, Aaron is at APY5000. Brian Renzi is at BRenz78. Noel Purcell is at Nameless Ranger. Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. Uh, Lucas Vlahos is at LVlahos343. And you can find our guest, Jonathan Mayo, on Twitter at Jonathan Mayo. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. That helps us quite a bit. And we will be back next week with more Mason Avenue audio. But until then, let's go Mets. <laughs>